of course I think children should have intervention. I think it's a human right for them to, to actually get help to reach the best possible capacity. But a functional assisting hand also needs to be defined from the individual's condition to be relevant. And a functional assisting hand is the most important aspect of hand function for children with a unilateral disability. Welcome to the first episode of the Centre for Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy's podcast. Here we will share with you presentations from some of the world's most innovative and advanced researchers and practitioners in the field of cerebral palsy. Lena Crumlin Sundholm has been a key player in revolutionising the way therapists approach treating the upper limb. She is the developer of the assisting hand assessment, uh, the AHA, and a co-author of other classification scales such as the MAX, the Manual Ability Classification System, and assessment tools including the CAPE Pack, the Children's Assessment of Participation and Enjoyment, and the Preference for Activities of Children. Speaking to us in Melbourne, Lena came to us from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, where she is a senior researcher. This is an edited version of the presentation, but you can find a link to the full hour-long and unedited presentation at our website, www.cre-cp.org.au. Introducing her subject matter, Lena explained how historically descriptions of the arm and cerebral palsy have been focusing on position rather than functional aspects of the arm and hand. Uh, descriptions, when you read in the literature, or at that time, 10 years ago especially, was very much focusing on arm-hand positions, like describing the arm-hand position as being adapted in the shoulder, internally rotated, forearm elbow flexed, forearm pronated, wrist flexed, ulnary de deviated, finger flexion, thumb in palm position, you know this, classic. And this is very often found in the literature. And there was one factor drawing each of these tests together. What all of these tests have in common is that they measure one hand at a time. So you measure the affected hand and you compare it to the well-functioning hand, but what it can do on its own, one hand at a time. Lena shows footage of a child who, while on his best behavior with his therapist, uses his non-preferred right hand frequently but with difficulty, and as soon as he is invited by the therapist to do what he usually does, he switches to his preferred left hand. What we need to acknowledge is what is the most functional way of using this hemiplegic hand? Because it wasn't very functional, this. He was doing much better using the hand as an assist. So functional hand use, functional is one of these words that I think we have some different definitions of. So what I mean with the functional hand use is that the hand and arm is used in a manner that makes activity performance effective, successful, and done with minimal effort. We had to start to look at how are two hands really used together and what is important, what can make this assisting hand a functional assisting hand. So sometimes we use our two hands simultaneously and symmetrically, like when clapping hands or carrying bags or something, but that's pretty seldom we do such activities. 
more, much more often, the two hands do different things, but simultaneously. And when we perform bimanual tasks, each hand adopts a different but complementary role. So the two hands have two different roles. And the dominant hand manipulates more and is quicker. And the non-dominant hand has more of a stabilizing role. And this is true for, for anybody. We can easily move our hands. I can easily move my hands and fingers easily, but I still very much prefer my right hand. I cannot brush my teeth with my left hand. That's, even though it's pretty simple, it's not possible for me to do it well. And this role differentiation, it becomes much more accentuated uh, for people with a unilateral disability, obviously. And for children who have a unilateral disability, the well-functioning hand will always be preferred for, for tasks that you can do with one hand. And that's pretty natural, isn't it? It should be. And they should, of course, then use their well-functioning hands for things that can be done with one hand. But what constitutes a functional assisting hand? What are the demands of that hand? That if, if an assisting hand does not really need to be writing letters, right? And it doesn't have to be quite as quick, do the very speedy things or the very accurate, when you need to do very accurate things. Of course, you use your more well-functioning hand. But how can we describe a functional, a good working assisting hand? So a few questions emerge. What is a functional assisting hand? How can we describe the way an assisting hand is used and measure its level of function? And how can we improve hand use? Lena's answer? Aha, uh -huh, might be a way to do this. So the AHA, the assisting hand <coughs> assessment, the purpose of this test is to measure and to describe the efficiency, effectiveness with which a child with unilateral disability actually uses his affected hand in bimanual activity performance. This test was developed first in 2003. So when we do the assisting hand assessment, we have the test procedure that we start with an activity that does demand the use of both hands without us having to say, use the right hand or use the right hand. The, the toys that we have in this test kit all make you use two hands if you can. You need to use two hands. So for the mini AHA, we have these toys that are appropriate for the younger children, like rattles and a spoon and a, a cup and very exciting toys that really kids really want to play with and they enjoy it, they have fun doing this test situation. The little older kids from, from 18 months and up, we have another set of toys that is more appropriate for them. For the children from six years of age, we have board games where they actually use almost the same objects, but it's put in a more age-appropriate context. And for the adolescents, we have a new board game that is more interesting for, for teenagers. Lena and her team used the rash analysis to develop the AHA and discovered it may be able to assist them in more usefully describing the difficulty of test items as well as other measures. What the rash really adds is that it does also gives us the difficulty of the test items from more easy to more difficult. It does so from, from the assumptions that are pretty simple and logical, that all persons are more likely to pass easy than difficult items, and that items are more likely to be passed by persons of high ability than persons of low ability. That is 
quite simple. And referring to the rationales' results, Lena demonstrates a few key findings. So, for example, holds, just holding something is really, really easy. Most children can hold on to something that is placed in their hand. Or stabilizing using the arm as a way to support, that's also very easy. Stabilizing using grasp is a whole lot more difficult. Grasping, grasping and scoring a four on grasp, like score grasp from the table is really, really hard for children with unilateral disability. And to do in-hand manipulation, very, very few can do that. So that's the most difficult item. Now this hierarchical order, when we first uh, found this out, we really thought it was interesting and, and thrilling because it did give us an idea and it did fit our clinical knowledge about how what could be difficult and what could be hard, uh, easy. And it gave us a way to think about development of hand function, of assisting hand function. Because we think that this order reflects a difficulty order of different actions that people do with their affected hand. And it's sort of development, but not, of course, typical development, but development order of actions for the assisting hand. The starting point, it's not like development that we think about in, in general, that you first you have to sit before you can crawl, before you can walk. Things have to take this order, and you have to start with sitting. That's not the case with this developmental order, because the starting point depends on the severity of the impairment. But once you have a starting point, you can look at what is the next thing that this person needs to be more efficient doing. And if you have somebody who really scores very low on the AHA, who, for example, doesn't use the hand much at all, who scores once on most of the items, then if you think, what is this that this person needs to learn next? And that would be maybe to be more efficient in stabilizing, using way to support, or uh, holding more efficiently and you shouldn't start what we often do as therapists with grasping releasing having people grasp release because that is really really hard and it will not be useful for this person uh, he will never do it in real life so we need to adapt our thinking to what is the next step uh, and we know that learning takes place when the ability of the person and the difficulty of the tasks are well matched. And we think that we can use the AHA to identify the next ability level in treatment. Lena's research scored ability in children in terms of flow in bimanual performance, with an overall performance score of 1 being the least able, progressing up to 4 for the most able. So we can actually from this, this uh, information also find descriptors that are very typical for children with unilateral dis uh, hemiplegia. We can say that they grasp from the dominant hand most often, rather than from the table, that they release to their dominant hand, that they use their dominant hand to adjust objects, rather than to do in-hand manipulation, that they initiate use, but with a little bit of delay or more delay. They reach for objects with the dominant hand, and they pick up objects on their affected side by crossing over with their well-functioning hand. So how functional are these behaviors? 
So grasping from the dominant hand rather from the table, is that functional? Depends, of course, on, on your ability, but it's often much easier, much quicker, much more efficient for, for them to grasp from the dominant hand than from the table. And releasing to the dominant hand rather than to the table, is that functional? Yeah, for, for most of them. Releasing to the dominant hand be, may be much more functional. It's often done quickly and easily. You hardly see that they do this, but actually they don't release to the table. So what are we training? What are we doing in intervention? We are really trying to make them grasp with their affected hand and release with their affected hand. That's what we, at least I, used to do all of the time, right? Of course, you need to know how to do that, and you need to know that you can do it when you need to. But maybe it's not the most functional way. Maybe we can rethink a little bit. And the last one, picking up objects placed on the affected hand side of the body with the dominant hand, how functional is that? Well, it is a compensation for sure, but it's very difficult to, to use your closest hand when you have to externally rotate and grasp directly from the table. So most children do cross over and it's a good compensation. Ability to perform a task, regardless of how difficult, Lena explains, depends on a number of factors, including the severity of a child's impairment, the object being handled, and the environment. Take, for example, grasp. We talked a lot about it already. But for somebody who has a very mild hemiplegia, it is actually functional to pick up from the table. But for somebody who has a more moderate hemiplegia, it's much more functional to pick up with the well-functioning hand and there, then grasp. And for somebody who has a very severe hemiplegia, it's not functional to grasp at all. It's more functional to stabilize the objects using weight to support because grasping is far too difficult. So all of these things has to be put in the perspective of the severity of the impairment. And that's where we, as therapists, need to be able to, to analyze what this individual child should do, how this child should use their hand, in a functional way. It also depends on what kind of object you are handling. An important takeaway point though. Difference between capacity and performance. These are two very different things. And the capacity sort of indicates the ceiling, but the difference between capacity and performance deserves a lot of attention. And if the best capacity is not used, it could have different reasons, of course. Maybe it's not just good enough to be useful functionally. That's one thing. Then you have to increase your capacity before you can use it, of course. Uh, but it's also that maybe they just haven't learned that they have this capacity or something else is disturbing this capacity. We need to not ask children to use their best capacity all the time because that's really, that's too tiring. It, it takes too much energy and too much time <coughs> because it's slower. But it's functional to use the hemiplegic hand for actions it can do well and to use a well-functioning hand when it's easier and more effective. And this is something that I think we therapists need to focus more on than we've done earlier at least. So we uh, therapists should help children to find the most functional way to use their affected hand and to make it specific and, and explain to parents that they don't they, because they often also want to help the child to become better and say, use your 
hear me hand, use your hear me hand, use your hear me hand. But to, to show parents in what way they can use their hemiplegic hand in a functional way is a big mission for us, I think, and a challenge. The AHA can be used as a tool to measure the effectiveness of the use of the assisting hand and to identify challenges to make motor learning possible. It can also be used as a guide for treatment to improve the functional use of the assisting hand. So, of course, joint alignment, muscle tone, weakness, all of these things are really important and we need to address them. But we must look beyond these factors and the functional use of the hands in everyday tasks should be in focus. And this can guide interventions to use both hands together successfully. Thank you for listening for the CRECP podcast. Once again, for a full, unedited version of Lena's presentation, visit our website at www.cre-cp.org.au, noting that she does refer to videos and graphs that do not translate easily to the audio medium. Subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes store, via our website, or your favorite podcast app. For more information on Lena Krumlin Sundholm, visit the Karolinska Institute website at ki.se.